Please take your Bibles and let's open together and read together and devote ourselves together to the preaching of God's Word as an act of worship. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We are continuing in our series through the book of 1 Corinthians and today, finally, with all the greetings and introductions out of the way, Paul now gets down to the real business of this letter in verses 10 through 17. And that is our passage of focus this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 10 through 17. Let's hear with faith God speak to us in the midst of His people this morning. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Our Father, our prayer is that this hour You would sanctify us by Your truth because we know that Your Word is truth. Our prayer, Father, is that we as the body of Christ may indeed be made one just as You are one. The Lord our God is one. Lord, grant us humility. Grant us wisdom. Grant us, Father, faith to hear and receive and believe Your Word. We ask through Your Son, Jesus. Amen. Given all that we know about this church here in Corinth and why Paul writes this letter, isn't it kind of surprising that this is the first issue that he chooses to address? Remember that this church... There was some pretty bad sexual immorality going on in this church. There were some people in the church who were suing each other. There were some who were still involved in pagan idolatrous practices. There were some who were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Their worship services were charismatic chaos with all sorts of disorder going on. And yet, with all of this going on, isn't it kind of surprising here that Paul speaks about seemingly petty divisions and favoritism. I mean, if you or I were writing this letter, would we just like come out and say it, like list a bunch of all these things and just say, stop it? Like, shape up? What is wrong with you people? But listen to what Paul says here. I, I appeal to you, brothers. I'm not coming throwing my weight around. I'm not coming threatening, condemning, commanding you, lording over you. 
I'm coming to make an appeal to you as brethren to strive to heal the divisions in your midst. Why do you think Paul starts this way? Why do you think he starts with this rather than what we might think is the real issue in the church? Oh my goodness, people are visiting prostitutes. People are getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Why does he start here? I believe he starts this way because despite what we may think, every other sin and problem in the church really can be traced back to this issue of division. Because the fact of the matter is, if the division in the church isn't addressed, it doesn't matter if the other issues are addressed or not. Because a church divided against itself cannot stand. Brethren, today I want you to see from this passage the serious threat that tribalism, personality cults, and division pose to the church. The problem in the church here in Corinth was division not over truth, not over doctrine. This is not just everybody love Jesus and let's get along. That's not the problem here. The problem was over personalities and personal preferences. And brethren, if we're honest, I mean, we must say that, you know, in our own reformed churches and circles, this type of division is not really uncommon in our midst either. It is possible to be fully united in truth and yet still fall into this error of division. It is possible to be fully united in the faith, but be divided in love. And that's what this passage is all about. Paul then writes to remind the Corinthians what they've forgotten. Don't you know that the body of Christ can't be divided? Don't you know that the leaders in the church are never to be the center of unity or devotion? And above all else, don't you know that the preaching and teaching ministry of the church, the message of the cross, always must be kept central to everything, every ministry, every aspect of church life. He writes to remind them of these things. He writes to remind them that if you forget or neglect these truths, the church and the body of Christ risks being rent asunder. And the church then ends up no different than the sinful and fallen world which is divided at every front. So today I want us to consider how the gospel addresses disunity in the church, what a serious issue it is, and how our unity is to be around Christ and Him crucified, and that is the means by which we are kept safe from this from, from division and all of the sins and errors that follow from that, and how we are to strive and to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. There's kind of three things that kind of help us summarize this message this morning. Division, doctrine, and declaration. It's kind of our outline that we'll follow. It's kind of a shorthand for what we see. We see division in the church. We see then Paul address the underlying doctrine behind it. And then he makes a practical application, as it were, by emphasizing declaration. So that will be our format this morning. Let's consider first this aspect of division and the danger of division. Look again at verse 10 through 12. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Because it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulos, I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. To feel kind of the force of what Paul says here in verse 10, uh, we need to remember what he just said in verse 9. Verse 9, in the gospel, we have been called into the fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fellowship, as I spoke of last week, entails a communion and a sharing of Christ. And a communion and a sharing of one another in the body of Christ. In fact, that's something that Paul will make explicit later when he talks about the Lord's Supper. And yet, the contrast, the force of this verse 10 is that the situation in Corinth was anything but. Here we see that there were disagreements in the church. There were quarrels. There were factions. There were rivalries. There were partisanship within the church. And these these divisions were inconsistent with the union and fellowship that Christ accomplished in the Gospel given to us in verse 9. So that's why Paul appeals to us, excuse me, appeals to them in the name of Christ here in verse 10. Not invoking his own authority, but invoking the authority of Christ. Invoking the Lord who has given us all things. The Lord who is our Lord and your Lord, all who call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 2. His point is out of respect for Christ. In obedience to Christ. In light of the work of Christ. You need to put off this division. You need to seek unity. But before we focus on the appeal, uh, let's understand the exact problem here. He mentions in verse 10, divisions. And implies that being of the same mind and judgment are the remedy. He mentions quarreling in verse 11. And he mentions factionalism, maybe personality clicks in verse 12. And as we trace out the root of this problem, what is very important that we recognize is that truth in theology is not the issue here. This wasn't quarreling over doctrine. This wasn't one favoring Calvinism and another Arminianism. This wasn't arguments over baptism or church government or spiritual gifts or eschatology. Right? This isn't a verse that we could use and say, see, there shouldn't be denominations. We should all just be one. No, the divisions in the quarreling here was over personalities and perhaps styles of leadership or styles of preaching. There was some sort of power struggle going on in the church. Struggle over who's in control. Who is going to have the preeminence? Who is going to take charge and lead the way? And so what Paul is saying is, you know, he calls them brethren twice in this passage, but you know, brethren hints at how they are a family, but he's saying, look, this isn't a family. You're on the verge of being a broken home here. It's clear that in some sense, some were puffed up with a sense of their own importance. Look at everything that I do in the church. Look at how much depends upon me. Look at how many people come to me and want my counsel or, or really love my teaching. It's clear that some uh, others in the church felt like second-class citizens. They were excluded or shunned from the in-crowd, or most specifically the spiritual crowd in the church, the truly religious, the truly dedicated. 
It's clear that some had expressed an intense loyalty to some leaders in the church, but not others. I'm with him, but I'm not with him. And these things have broken out into quarreling and arguing and dissensions and and tense interactions and conflicts in the body. And and in this respect, the one church in Corinth was on the verge of splintering into several different factions. Not just a, a church split, but a church fragmentation. Splintering in many different sections. So what Paul means by this is what he goes into in verse um, 12. He says, each one of you says, I follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. Now there's been a lot of speculation about trying to discern what this problem was. And let me just say, we don't know for sure. I'm going to give you my opinion here in a minute. Uh, We can speculate. Uh, But if we were to think through this some... Um, we may think, okay, maybe some showed affinity to Paul because he's the one who had planted the church. Maybe they had been baptized by him. Maybe, you know, he was, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, they were particularly loyal to him. Maybe these were the traditionalists, the old timers, the original founding members of the church. So they resisted other leaders. Maybe uh, others liked Apollos because of his great learning or his great preaching. Maybe um, the younger, the newer converts, the, new, the younger generation in the church were more attracted to him. You know, he gets us. Maybe others like Cephas because he had been with the Lord. Cephas, of course, is a reference to Peter. Well, Peter was told to be the rock of the church. Peter's the apostle of the Jews. Well, I have a Jewish background. I prefer him. He actually walked and lived and talked with the Lord. This last one, though, is really odd because it sounds right and it sounds noble. I follow Christ. Can't you just like hear the, you know, the proud, stiff, boasting, I don't follow all you other people. I follow Jesus. But Paul condemns this group too. It seems that this group saw themselves as superior to others. Boasted in saying, I just follow Jesus. I'm not going to take any other name. They're using the name of Jesus just to create another faction. Regardless, we don't know exactly sure about these groups. We don't know exactly what they stood for. Um, I'm actually going to argue they weren't actually even real groups within the church. uh, Because what we do know and what we can conclude from a few things is that although there were groups within the church that were claiming affinity to one leader or another, I don't believe these are actual groups, because, um, at least under these specific names, because Paul doesn't ever critique these groups or address the leaders or hold the leaders accountable for anything. I think he's just using them as an example, or using these names as an example. For example, in the book of Galatians, Peter had shown a particular preference for Jewish believers and Paul confronted him to his face. And then he wrote about it (laughs) in the epistle. Like another instance of Peter messing up, right? If there wasn't enough already from the Gospels. But that doesn't, Paul doesn't do that here. If these were real groups within the church, 
if they were actually following these leaders because of this or that, we'd expect Paul to address them. We'd expect Paul to discuss the pros and cons of what they stood for and why. This shows us as well that this is not a division over doctrine. He never addresses each group. If one group had actually been showing a favoritism towards Gentile or Jewish believers, Paul would have called them out. If this was division over, I don't know, baptism or spiritual gifts, Paul would have called them out. This issue wasn't over doctrine. Doctrine wasn't the issue. And again, I think this is very important in our day because some people use this verse to condemn denominations or creeds or confessions as saying this verse violates the fact that we're a Baptist church and we're not Presbyterian. In fact, I can't even tell you how many times someone has said to me, well, you call yourself a Calvinist. You're just like this. I am of Calvin. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this regarding Lutherans. They follow Luther or Wesley following John Wesley or Thomas following Thomas Aquinas. They use this verse and say, see, you're giving preference to a man. No. We're giving preference to a set of beliefs. Yes. But the issue here is not over doctrine. The issue here is personalities. It's diverse parties within the same congregation. There's nothing wrong with holding to our specific convictions and identifying ourselves as such. In fact, I'd say it's far more honest and charitable that that we do instead of saying things like, I have no creed but the Bible, or I refuse to call myself anything but a Christian. Brethren, more often than not, that's just a cover for I am unwilling to have my beliefs challenged. I am unwilling to be accountable to the greater body of Christ. It's a form of individualism and personal autonomy, and it is out of place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul isn't singling out leaders. He isn't mentioning doctrine. He's addressing everyone, all of the groups, even those who say, I follow Jesus, because we're dealing with an issue of style and personality and personal favoritism. And in a sense, he uses these names, these prominent names, Apollos, Cephas, Christ, Paul, to show how ridiculous it all is. He's saying, look, you can't show exclusive allegiance even to these, then how much more so should you not show exclusive allegiance to the lesser names in your midst? People who are unheard of. Even dividing over the name of Christ gets it all wrong. So Paul calls them to agree with one another. Put aside petty feelings and preferences and differences. Strive to be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. That's a oneness of spirit. That's a humility of spirit. And essentially saying, you must be ready to voluntarily give up your personal rights and preferences and opinions on secondary matters for the good, greater good of the whole. Have you heard of churches splitting over the color of the carpet before? Right? We've heard of churches splitting over so many different petty, stupid things that come down not to doctrine, not to theology, but just personal preference. 
Brethren, we must always be on guard against showing personal loyalty or favoritism to some over the others. Or to exclude others based upon such things. And this is the danger of division. It's the danger that, that is no less a threat in our day. Because don't we naturally just gravitate towards people like us? We naturally gravitate towards the people in the church that are just like us. Same stage of life, same economic bracket, same educational bracket, same racial bracket, right? Same hobbies that we enjoy, same discussions and books that we like to read, same characteristics and and, and, um, personalities that we prefer. Brethren, these aren't trivial matters. This is how small divisions can overthrow an entire church. And we must not be ignorant of Satan's designs. And I think that's particularly relevant in our church because we have a very firm commitment to a statement uh, of faith. Right? It's really deeply rooted in, in our constitution and what we are about as a church. This is why personality threats are such a great danger to us. We're called to labor and to strive and to be zealous to maintain the unity of the faith and the bonds of peace, recognizing the danger of division. But secondly, after detailing the division, we see the doctrine that underlies it. The doctrine that underlies it. And we see this in verse 13 through 16. Let's look again. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Are we baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. I think it's clear that Paul is a bit frustrated. He kind of explodes with this series of rhetorical questions. Questions where the answer is obvious. You've fallen into factions, but tell me, is Christ divided? The wording here, the imagery is dismemberment. Calvin said, Christ was being torn to pieces, limb from limb. These factions were as if Jesus had been split into different parts, with one part going here and another part there, so there's total fragmentation. In fact, as I was thinking about this, my mind ran to Judges 19-21. through The end of the book of Judges, I preached on that a few years ago. But if you recall, the horrible way that book ends. There was a Levitical priest who was mistreated by another tribe of Israel. And so he dismembered his concubine into 12 parts. And he sent one part of her body to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was an emphatic way of illustrating how the one nation of Israel had been dismembered and torn limb from limb. Of course, what do we see in that book? Civil war followed when he did that. The nation of Israel almost destroyed itself. Paul is saying, is this possible in the body of Christ? The answer is, no, of course not. Christ isn't divided. So stop with this behavior that that really is attempting to dismember Him. There is one Lord. There is one faith. There is one baptism. There is one body. Your sin is attempting to divide that which cannot be divided. 
Brethren, we need to take seriously the fact that that division is akin to dismembering the body of Christ. We are members of one another. We are members of Him. That's why divisiveness in the church is one of, if not the greatest sin a Christian can commit. And yet it's one that we all at times can easily fall into. Another rhetorical question, was Christ, excuse me, was Paul crucified for you? Paul is saying, sure, I, I, I led you, I may have led you to saving faith in Christ. I may have planted this church, but, but did I die for you? Was I your sacrifice and atonement? Have I ever pretended to be your Savior? Have I ever insinuated anything other than that I am a minister sent as an instrument to point you to Christ? We'll come back to this in a moment, but here he begins to bring in the doctrine of the cross. The centrality of the cross as the ultimate remedy of their division. Look back and see who died for you. Who died for you? That is your ultimate allegiance. And he says, rebaptized in the name of Paul. Uh, to speak of baptism into the name, the name entails allegiance and fellowship. And the point is obvious. In their baptism, they weren't being baptized with the allegiance toward the one who was baptizing them, but in allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and in fellowship of the triune God. It seems clear at this point that some in the church were using baptism to strengthen their faction. Perhaps who baptized whom became a point of pride and a point of boasting. Right? Perhaps they were using their baptisms to boast in their own converts as well. Start their own factions. Well, I baptized 45 last quarter. How many did you baptize? I'm the one that gets things done in the church. That's why Paul in verse 15 and 16, he he actually downplays his role, his own role in baptism. He does not downplay baptism, but he downplays his role and even thanks God that he didn't baptize more because that could have caused a greater faction in the church. Here he mentions Crispus and Gaius. Those were some of his early converts very early on in Corinth. And he's kind of riding off the cuff and he suddenly remembers the household of Stephanus. Yes, I baptized them as well. They were also some of his first converts we read of in Acts 15, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 16, excuse me. Um, just a side note here, some Presbyterians like John Calvin have used this mention of household baptisms to argue for infant baptism. But obviously, we can't be certain that infants were included in the household. Um, households nowadays... When we think of that term, it means a lot different than what it meant back then. Um, we're, it's not, we're not talking about a nuclear family here. Of, of you know, uh, We're talking about a clan, more likely. And there's a lot of households that don't have infants or children. There's no reason to suppose that anyone was baptized who didn't profess faith first. I think even more to this point, though, is Acts 16. Acts, I keep saying that. 1 Corinthians 16.15. Uh, household of Stephanus is mentioned again. And there Paul says that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
It's language that speaks of mature converts walking in Christian obedience. It's not language that can be spoken of infants. Nevertheless, the language here, the point at hand, Paul's not downplaying baptism. He's just saying that baptism, whomever it is that baptized you, is not important. I didn't use baptizing to uh, uh, make converts loyal to myself. What matters is the name by whom uh, was invoked in baptism. You were swearing allegiance to Christ in your baptism, not to whoever baptized you. Baptism thus unites you to Him because you swore in those waters to follow Him, not another leader. That's His point. Ministers, however instrumental they are to our good, they don't take the place of Christ. They do not usurp Christ's authority. Whoever leads us to Christ, whoever baptizes us, whoever pastors us, is not to create a personal loyalty and exclusion to the body of Christ. Ministers are servants. They are instruments to lead us to Christ, not back to themselves. Calvin said it this way, This is the most destructive of all plagues. This is the deadly poison of all churches. Pretty strong language. When ministers are devoted to their own interests rather than to Christ. The doctrine here is that Christ is not divided. Christ alone died for you. Christ is the one you belong to because you swore allegiance to Him in your baptism. Why are you living inconsistent with these doctrines? Why are you acting as if Christ is divided? Why are you functionally living as though ministers and pastors are your Savior? Brethren, I've said this many times already. I'll say it again. The problem in the church and all of this is they had taken their eyes off Christ and Him crucified. Paul is calling them all back to this central, all-encompassing reality. And that's what he does here with the doctrine. The doctrine that contradicts your actions. Christ and Him crucified puts you to shame. It corrects your error. And that's where we turn third and finally, where he takes this doctrine and then he makes application of it. What does it look like when Christ alone is our Savior. So third and finally, declaration. Declaration. The centrality of the Gospel. Declaration. Look at verse 17. For Christ did not send Me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. To those who place too much importance on who it is that baptized them, Paul really puts baptism... I guess uh, uh, um, he relegates it to its proper role. Its proper role in the ministry of the Gospel as being something that is not primary, but secondary. Here we see it's a very dangerous and divisive error to say who it is that baptized you is what really matters in salvation. Now I'll be honest, we don't recognize the baptism of false churches. But within true churches, the efficacy of baptism does not depend upon what church you were baptized in and who it is that baptized you. 
To say that someone must be baptized by my church or my denomination for it to be valid is to commit this horrible sin of division right here. In fact, let me tread carefully here, but really, truly, that's cult-like behavior. To say that you have to be baptized by us or it's not real. That's cult-like behavior. We are the only guardians of truth. Because baptism, though, although it is important, it's not as important as the preaching of the gospel. That's Paul's point here. So we see the error of those who who say, well, my church or my denomination makes baptism valid. But we also see the error of saying that uh, that baptism is necessary for salvation. Baptism is certainly an area, uh, a matter of obedience, but it's not a, 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 a matter of salvation. It's not necessary for salvation. Otherwise, Paul couldn't say here, I wasn't sent to baptize. Here we also see the error of those who hold to baptismal regeneration, like the Lutherans, or the Anglicans, or others. Sorry for naming names, just being honest. Those who argue that the rite of baptism itself saves. If so, Paul clearly couldn't say this right here. That preaching is preeminent. Because it's the gospel, the preached gospel, that's the power of God and the salvation. Not the rite of baptism. I argue as well, here we see also the error of infant baptism. Because... Even as the reformers love to argue regarding the supper, the sacraments mean nothing apart from the word being preached and received. Baptism is always to be accompanied by the word for, for faith, um, under, uh, understanding the word, receiving the word. That's what makes it effectual. Otherwise, it's just a bath. Otherwise, the Lord's Supper is just crackers and juice or wine. <laughs> That's why we see in the sense the Word must accompany. The Word is what makes baptism and the supper effectual. It's the Word that's working, not the actual ordinance itself. Faith must be present. And that's why also uh, from Paul's wording and every other example of baptism that we see in the New Testament, it always follows gospel proclamation and gospel reception. There is no other example of that in the New Testament. All of this then is why Paul says, I wasn't sent to baptize, I was sent to preach. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ preached. And so the main point is that the power of God under salvation is the gospel. Here the main point is the power of God that preserves the unity of the faith and the bonds of peace is the gospel. It is by declaring Christ in Him crucified, that message, that centrality, that is the center that holds us together as the body of Christ. That is to be the center of leadership. That is to be the center of preaching. That is to be the center of teaching. It's to be the center of worship. Worship. That's why we have in our service a long sermon. Yes, I'm sorry. That's why we also have a reading of the Gospel. That's why we have the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Every single service. That is our attempt to make Christ and Him crucified center to everything. 
Nothing else is more important. And everything else in church life, everything else will only flow down from that. Here he mentions, I wasn't sent to preach with eloquent words of wisdom. We need to understand this in context. I'm going to get into this in verse 18 and following next time. But back in that day, there was rhetoric was highly prized. And you had people who made a profession out of it. That's all they did. They would study and practice endlessly in order to deliver very beautiful and enrapturing speeches. Um, they would commit long speeches to memory. They would practice endlessly elaborate uh, fluctuation with their voice and their tone. And in that day, whoever was uh, the most eloquent was considered to be the most true. What is truth? It's who can communicate it with the most beauty and eloquence. And that's what Paul's speaking of here. How they'd so skillfully turn a phrase and use this flourishing terminology and and they would manipulate and persuade. And Paul is saying, look, those distract from the Gospel. Those draw people to the speaker rather than to, to the message. Those create trust in men rather than trust in Christ. Brother, don't we see the same in our day? How often do we see the focus and reputation of a church being based upon who their pastor is? That's often why it's out there on the sign. How often do we see the focus being on, was the pastor a good communicator? Does he have a sense of humor? Is he able to speak with nuance at all the pressing issues of our day? Is he really practical? You know, does a pastor give me something that really just helps me get my life in order? Does he get results? Does he, does he produce baptisms? Do people respond to his invitation? Do they gravitate towards his personality? Brethren, it's the same thing. There's nothing new under the sun. We see this sadly in our day when a pastor steps down or sadly if he disqualifies himself or something, so often the church falls apart. That tells you right there. Their faith is in a man. In fact, I've said this many times before, that's what's different about Reformed churches and modern evangelicalism. Stepping on toes again, I'm sorry. One of the big differences is that modern evangelical non-denominational churches are often built around a personality of the pastor. While Reformed churches, we strive to build around truth. Doctrine. The minister can come and go. He's expendable. I'm expendable. If I were gone this week, for whatever reason, my hope and prayer is that this this church would continue just the same. Because anybody can fill my shoes if they preach Christ and Him crucified. It's the truth that matters, not the man. And so how do we combat unity? How do we fight against encroaching division? How do we uh, uh, maintain an eagerness to preserve the unity of the faith and the bonds of uh, peace by actively and intentionally centering church life around the message of Christ and the church eagerly receiving and being content with such? And why is this so? as we bring this to a conclusion. What is so magical about the message of the cross? Why, why, why does it heal division? Why is it the remedy 
Why is it what we need? What is the greatest and most pressing sin when we talk about division and rivalry? What is it? Pride. Pride of wanting the preeminence. Pride of wanting our way. Pride of wanting attention. Pride in wanting the church to be ordered like we want it ordered. Pride of wanting the church to devote itself to things that we think are important. Pride of getting leaders and others to do what we want and what we think is best. Pride. Pride lies at the heart of division. And what is the ultimate soul-crushing death blow to our pride? A bloody Savior. A God-man who had to die in order for you to be forgiven. Your sin is so deep and so filthy and so offensive to God that it took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to reconcile you. Your ignorance is so deep. You're so dead in your sin. You're so enslaved by Satan and the things of this world that only the foolish message of the cross and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit can bring you to life. The message of the cross announces to you every single week, you're not saved by your good works. You're not saved because you're worthy. You're not saved by your own skill. You're not saved by uh, the preacher and his rhetoric or his communicative skills. You aren't saved by your baptism. You aren't saved by being in church and just being present. You were passive in your salvation. You were helpless when it came to the things of God. You, You were... Like to you, the, the imagery of Ezekiel, you were wallowing in your blood when Christ walked by and saw you and said, took pity on you and said, live. That's the only reason you're here. The cross puts that preeminent front and center every single week and Lord willing, every single day of our lives. And when our eyes are focused on Him, we don't have the time for divisions, but we certainly don't have the pride for them. Because we know what we deserve. And we know His grace that's been poured out of us. Undeserved in every manner. Coming to us by sheer mercy. So brethren, this is how the cross is to be the center of our lives, the center of our homes, the center of our churches. This is what unites us. This is what heals the sin of division. This is what guards us from every other sin in the book of Corinthians and anything else we can think of. Christ and Him crucified. The message that is the power of God unto salvation. And brethren, the same is true in your individual life as well. What is going on in your life? The sin you're struggling with, the despair you're struggling with, the division with others you're struggling with, the frustration you're struggling with, the answer is no less the same there as well. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into His wonderful face. The things of earth will go strangely dim in light of His glory and grace. That's the message for us from 1 Corinthians. That's the message for us this morning. May God give us grace to see Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray.